Welcome to JR Art Loud, the podcast of Jewish Renaissance magazine. I'm Judy Herman, and today I'm absolutely delighted to be with Alexander Bodin Safir. Actually, it's, it's fantastic that we are meeting during Hanukkah, because your play, Rosenbaum's Rescue, is, is actually set during Hanukkah in Denmark. And in a way, that strapline for Hanukkah, um, A Great Miracle Was Wrought Here, is sort of relevant to the play. Anyway, welcome, and thank you for meeting me. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Before we talk about the play, let's talk a bit about your background, because that's such it's the most brilliant name. I had nothing to do with it. Um, blame my parents. So, yes, my my father is um, English and my, my mother is, is from Denmark. Um, they actually met in Israel, in Jerusalem, where my mum was living on, on Denmark Square, aptly named in Jerusalem. And um, I feel like I've grown up very much as, as, a, as a Dane abroad in many ways. Um, and I'm very close to my Danish family and would, would visit regularly. Uh, and that's when I first heard about, about the story that, that I became quite, quite obsessed with um, over the last 20 years or so. 20 whole years, gosh. You're obviously living in London now, so you've lived in Denmark as well as, and Israel. Mm. Yes, so um, I, I did a, a classic gap year in Israel. Um, I then went and, and studied um, uh, my undergrad degree in America, and then uh, went back to Denmark and lived there for, for, for just over a year before coming back here and doing to London to do an MA in, in script writing, actually. Mm. So I started off in, in film and still am primarily a, a filmmaker, but um, felt the need to tell this story. And actually, the story started as a docudrama. I can really, you know, as, I, as I'm reading that story, that's how it feels. It, it very much um, started as an attempt to, to understand what happened during that month of October in 1943. And in digging into it, I thought, well, it's very dramatic, it's got some really interesting moments. And, and what, what was fascinating about the time that I was looking at was also that it was, it was controversial in today's historical narrative that there were historians that were digging into it, a new generation of historians that were starting to look at it afresh and I thought this could be really interesting as a mm. docudrama but the more I dug into it the more I realized actually the story of the rescue is 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 fundamental to to the story that I want to tell but actually I want to talk more about the nature of history the nature of truth, be a bit more philosophical about the idea of identity. And, and really, in order to have those kind of conversations, I felt um, a play where you have real people in front of you, where you can, it's much more intimate, um, can, can be more effective. And then, after I'd made that decision, I discovered a, a very, very important family connection to the whole story, which really sealed the deal for me, that the only way to tell this story was was in this intimate personal space where you are almost one-to-one -one with, with the actors. To me, it feels as if there ought to be a book of the play and a film of the book. <laughs> so you can't do all three because we're, we should tell the story briefly, of course, but uh, to me, it's a story that needs telling and it's lovely to tell it to a couple of hundred people in a theatre, but I really feel it's a big, big story. So just, just very briefly outline the big, big story. Well, I mean, th there are layers to the big story, which is why it, it, it's quite a complicated pitch. But effectively, um, 
the Danish Jews had a very privileged experience during during the Second World War, uh, privileged in that uh, 95% of the Danish Jews were, were rescued, were, were saved, and only 5% ended up actually going to Theresienstadt. Um, and of that 5%, only uh, less than 1% um, ended up dying as a result of, of, of the Nazi um, uh, roundup, uh, which, is, which is totally different to any other occupied country in Europe, apart from Bulgaria. Yes, I've heard that. Mm. Well, so there's, there's a connection there. So, so Bulgaria, Ooh, right. well, well, Bulgaria saved its Jews, and Bulgaria was able to save its Jews because it was effectively an Axis power. Um, Denmark was not officially an Axis power, um, but there was a, a negotiated cooperation, a policy of, of cooperation, in fact, uh, between the Danish government and the German government, which led to a much softer, in many ways, um, occupation of, of, of Denmark. I mean, in fact, uh, that the Germans who were um, sent to, to the Danish front um, called it the Cream Puff Front. Uh, because because it was either that or the Eastern Front. So obviously mm. you would prefer to go and hang out with with with, with Danish um, um, women <laughs> um, if you could than than on the Eastern yes. Front. But to to get back to the actual story, Denmark was able to to save ninety five percent of its Jews, and and the question has always been um, how, and and the answer for many years was effectively it was a miracle that just at the right time in just the right way. Um, all the key people, the soldiers on the ground, the, the soldiers in leading positions in, 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 in authority, turned, turned their back and allowed the Jews to escape. And by the way, let's not minimize the, the sacrifices um, that the resistance and, and the Danish people in general made. I mean, it would never have been possible for 95% of, of Danish Jewry, 7,000 people, to, to be ferried across um, the water between Denmark and Sweden, I mean, over 700 boats mm. or boat trips um, over the course of three weeks. It's like a sort of Dunkirk, isn't well, it? Well, exactly, and, and, and it is exactly that. It's a Dunkirk, which, which has, in the same way that Dunkirk um, became a, a part of British national identity, this rescue of the Danish Jews has also become a part of, of, of Danish identity, uh, national identity, not just a Jewish identity. But up until the last 15 years or so, it always was simply referred to as the miracle rescue. Mm. And it was considered that, that there's no way to explain it other than God intervened. And now, with a new generation of historians, there's, there's a, a renewed look at the details of what actually happened. And what they've discovered is that, yes, the resistance was fundamentally important. It could never have happened without the people, the, the, the doctors, the nurses, the, the massive goodwill that, that the Danish people had and um, were able to to ferry these 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 Danes as they called them because they weren't Jews they were Danes across mm. the water. Well, that's lovely to hear that isn't it? Mm. I think so so what happens is of course that um, the only way that this is possible this rescue is possible mm. is if the Jews are considered not other they are considered part of Danish society. And that, for me, is the miracle, that, that the Danish people considered the Jews to be not other, not immigrants, not, not set apart in any way, shape or form, but actually Danish and, and worth saving. That's, that's, at this time, a fantastic thought. I, I suppose we're going to talk about whether that, that inclusivity has, has survived or not. But you know, that's what you always hope to hear, isn't it? 
I mean, about, you know, wherever the Jews are, and you always assume in Scandinavia it would be like that, but I know I'm wrong. Well, you're not wrong. I mean, no, I mean, uh, not, in some some ways. No, but you're, you're you're spot on. In 1943, mm. this is this is this was the the Scandinavian experience. Mm. Specifically, this was well. I mean, the Scandinavian experience were were very different. Uh, we had um, the Danish experience, which was one experience. We had mm. Norway, which had a quizzling government. Yes, I've I've been reading about that. I mean, it's quite a wound, isn't it? Who landed up on which side, with the Russians or with, with the Germans? And, and I think it's it's a, that's another very rich and. And a worrying theme, isn't it? Absolutely. And then, um, and then, of course, you've got Sweden, which, mm. which had a very different Second World War in which they were ostensibly um, neutral, um, but were um, selling arms and, and, and steel to the Germans. Yes. And, and specifically yeah. the steel, they, yeah. were, they were told to, to stop by the Allies. So mm. they simply just put up the prices because it then became illegal for them yeah. to do so. And, and they, they really benefited. And, and, and Sweden has, has, in many ways, has really attempted to to address that and deal with that and when you talk to Sweden uh, Swedish people today they they really understand um, what what happened then and I, I feel like there there has been a national debate funnily enough I feel that the the Danish conversation is still rooted in the and I don't want to call it a myth, but certainly the old story of the miracle rescue mm-hmm. because now what has come out in the last fifteen years is that as I was saying, yes, definitely the, the resistance was fundamentally important to, to, to making sure that the Jews could escape, but more importantly, that the policy of negotiation made it possible for the government to be warned that there was going to be a roundup, for there to be close discussion between the Germans and the government, the Germans and, and by proxy the Jews, and also that there were Germans in key positions um, who will later claim that they sabotage their own operation to round up the Jews. And that is something that really has only been given um, real analysis in the last 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is the inspiration for a story because for me, as a storyteller, um, you have this fantastic story which effectively is a fairy tale of, of um, black and white, good, good and evil. Mm-hmm. And then over time, you get this new, more nuanced, um, less black and white, more grey story, which actually is more truthful, but maybe is, is slightly harder to digest because it's more complex. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, as a storyteller, when you put those two narratives up against each other and then you, 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 you see the conflict in them and then, of course, in, in a stage play, you can have two characters who, who believe strongly in one narrative or the other. Um, there's, there's, an, there's a personal conflict, there's an ideological conflict, there's a narrative conflict. And straight away then, for me, as a storyteller and as, a, as, a, um, as somebody who, um, who's fascinated by, um, by some of these philosophical issues uh, that come out of this, it, it becomes really exciting. Mm. And so there's, I mean, I know you're obviously we're, we're talking ahead of you writing an article about all this for Jewish Renaissance hard copy, in which you're going to reveal the family connection. I think yeah. So, but I mean, briefly, I guess we need to just just know it that it gets even better, doesn't it? It, it, it gets better from a from a, a storytelling point of view. That's gets, what I meant. No, no, no <laughs> I mean, it gets it gets it gets better. Um, it becomes richer. Mm. It becomes richer and more layered because of the family connection. The family connection being that my grandfather was a tailor in in the red light district of of, of Copenhagen and um, was 
warned by a German officer to get out before the roundup and actually was warned before the what's been known as the official warning to the Danish Jews on Erev Rosh Hashanah, uh, 1943. And for me, it's always been an interesting journey to try and understand who was this high-ranking German official. And I became fascinated by this. All I knew at the time was that it was somebody high up, but then who had the relevant information at that time. And it became almost like an investigation. And I was talking to to family, to some cousins of mine, and um, it turns out that there was a name, mm. and that the name is 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 revealed, or or maybe even revealed in the play. So I don't want to spoil it too no, much. You know that thing, ripping yarns. It's ripping and gripping this yarn, isn't it? And yes, and I'm glad that's all in the play because it's such a good story. So let's talk a bit about the play. Because you've got the, your your two main characters are Abraham and Lars. So I'm guessing this is your archetypal Jew and um, your archetypal Dane. And there are two women in it as well, Ava and Sarah. Maybe they're wives? So yes, there's conflict all over the place because uh, there's, there's no end for, for relationship conflict. But so the two main protagonists are, are Abe and Lars. And, and that they were both young kids uh, during the the rescue so in october 43 they were they, they were they became friends and um really this is an opportunity for them to many years later in in 2001 to have a conversation about what actually happened um in, in october 43 and you're right that that abraham is the archetypal jew um and 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 he's somebody who has built his his religious and personal identity on what happened during that month of October. Um, so he became religious um, in that moment, and and of course Lars is is there to as is now uh, a historian, and and he's there to have a conversation with um, with Abe about what he records. And during that conversation, um, Abe's Abe's identity, his his whole understanding of what happened, um, and hence. His personal identity is challenged, mm. um, and this mirrors a a national identity that the, the Danish people have built up around the rescue, and are very proud of the fact that they, throughout of all of the, the Second World War, um, managed to save ninety five percent of their of, of their Jewish population. Whereas you know Holland, which mm. also is, is is a liberal, um, uh, batting liberal progressivism, um, only managed to save you know struggled to save twenty five percent. So yeah. so when you when you put those two together, and there's this idea that this national identity is now being um, readdressed because of what has come out now during during the historical debate, um, it's a really fascinating time to and a rich vein to, to set a story in uh, do you think this is going to be something that is going to distress the jews of denmark to undermine their story like that because i also was brought up on this idea that i can't you know any novel that you read that sort of went across you know across the holocaust i'm not even sure the exodus doesn't mention it the danes are held up as an exemplary and more and more you hear the opposite probably about about the, the jews of, of holland so, um, you know, do you think they'll feel that you're undermined by this? I hope not, because I, 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 I very much believe that um, there was a miracle that occurred in Denmark in October 43. It wasn't necessarily the miracle of, of boats crossing the autumn, mm. but I think that it was the miracle of the Danish people, as we've said, thinking of the Jews 
as first and foremost as Danes. And that is what made it possible for the rest of that escape to actually happen. Um, and that there's no way that, um, that anything that I can say can take away from that. Um, and that's not what, what the play is about. The play is, is simply about nuance and about, as I mentioned, greys rather than black and whites. And I think that part of the reason why you why it's important that we, we, we readdress these stories and we, we really understand the nuance of them is because history has a lot to teach us about the present and about the future. And if we rely on fairy tales and black and white stories, we may not be able to see the warning signs of, of, of that story coming back. So if we only see the Germans as black and white. If we only see those narratives as, as cartoonish in their, in their obvious um, evil versus good, um, and we don't see the real nuance that was happening on the ground at the time, then we don't learn the lessons from history. And I completely see that. So the play is entirely set in 2001, which is a sort of pivotal year, you think. Is that right, that we are where we are now because of events in 2001 and... and that that's almost as if that set set us on a particular path towards where we are now, which is in a, not in that good a place. I think we, the world. I mean, well, I, th- I think you. I think there can be an argument that can be said, certainly for Denmark, that um, Denmark had elections in in November two thousand and one, um, in the shadow of of September the eleventh, obviously, um, and in those elections uh, they became notorious for a right wing uh, party. Um, uh, the Danish People's Party, Den, Den, Danske Folkeparti, campaigning on a, on a really quite aggressive anti-immigration platform. Um, and this party was only five years old at the time and became a kingmaker in that particular um, uh, coalition, was able to be part of the new governing coalition. And, and in many ways, um, and I, I, don't think, I don't think anybody should judge or blame Denmark for, 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 for making those choices. I think that um, given the fear that, that was globally part of our narrative at the time, um, I think it makes uh, it's very understandable why a more right-wing um, uh, policy was adopted. Um, but I do feel that that it becomes then almost the canary in the coal mine. It becomes almost this, this uh, and I said this before, this harbinger of, of, of things to come as, as a global shift to the right. And now we see it, obviously, with, you know, we're now in 2018, nearly 2019, and we see Trump's America, we see Brexit, no Brexit, what's going to happen there. We mm. see just recently the far right have, have uh, gained footholds in Spain. We see, obviously... Hungary? Hungary, obviously, we see, um, you know, there's a CNN poll out there which, which talks about the rise in anti-Semitism um, all over all over Europe, you know. So, so we're now living in um, in a world which um, which is scared, um, and and I feel that um, in many ways policies that um, have been enacted um, since two thousand and one can have their their gestation in in those moments in two thousand and one. That's really interesting because you know we tend to talk more about that this is all happening because of the shift of refugees as a result of Syria and all, all the other conflicts going on, mostly in the Middle East or Afghanistan, you know, with, with literally children run, finding their way across more than one continent, really. I mean, and then being denied succour when they get here. You know, you know, we, we, so, you know, I, I'm very much on the side that we should be letting in 10,000 
I'm the comforted man. I'm with Lord Tubbs on that. So, but this is all you're saying. It goes back so much further. That's what I think is so interesting. In a way, I mean, you are because you're saying you know that the seeds were sown earlier. Well, I, th- I think I think the seeds were sown even earlier than 2001. Mm. I mean, 2001 didn't happen in a vacuum. I think that you know Osama bin Laden had grievances going back decades. Mm. And um, but I think that to to look at, at where we are today and say it is simply because of immigration, well, then you've got to ask, why mm. is there immigration? And then you yep. look back at the the uh, war in Iraq, you look back at Afghanistan, you look back at also uh, um, the, the... I mean, it's an interesting question. Would our reaction be the same today to that influx of immigration if we hadn't had the 2008 uh, recession? Because in many ways, the recession then has has galvanized the populations of, of Europe um, and austerity has made has made life harder. And therefore, immigrants then become the easy target to blame for austerity, for, for the fact that you don't have a job. So these two, for me, these two moments in history have collided and, and, and have meant that, and, and of course, there are plenty of other variables, plenty of other factors. And I'm sure that when the history is written, it will be rewritten a number of times, as in fact, I'm rewriting or part of the process process of, of reanalyzing and, and, and re-engaging with, with October 43. So I'll be fascinated to know what happens in 50 years time and 100 years mm-hmm. time as how, how the history books look back at, at, at what is yeah. happening today. Yes, yeah, so well, two things really that I, th- I think of from that. One of which is we should just look again at the anti-Semitism. You know, what, is, it, is it just because when anybody's looking for a scapegoat, they always find the Jews. I mean, you know, if you've got a theory on that, I mean, why is that suddenly? Is it, or is it just the theory of any other at all? Because in my lifetime, I've never known that the word anti-Semitism to be in play quite as much as it is today. Yes, I mean, I think that we are in a, in a, in a very interesting, in the Chinese proverb um, yeah. sense of the word, interesting time in history, in that we've got um, anti-Semitism both on the hard right, but also on the hard left. Mm. Um, and, and in many ways, the anti-Semitism on the, li- on, the, on the left is born out of a conflating of, of Israel and Jew. And on the right, it's, it's just a, the classic fascist model of, mm. of, of anti-Semitism. I think that, um, as I mentioned, if you if you add to that the recession, the global recession, and you add to that then also this this nationalism, this this sharp borders. I mean, when a country identifies itself, when any group identifies itself, it identifies itself not simply as um, who it is, but it also identifies who it's not. So it's an in and out group. So I am X, Y, Z because I am not A, B, C. Um, and my story that I tell myself as an X, Y, Z is superior to the story that they tell themselves as ABCs. Um, so it's a classic in-out group. And of course, immigrants are the classic outsiders. They are the other. Um, and they are the priority for, for the right-wingers at the moment. Mm-hmm. But there's a straight line that can be drawn from, from the outsider other to the insider other, and the Jew being the insider other. Mm-hmm. And also, when you look at austerity and you look at the recession and then you look around and there is the classic stereotype of 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 the money jew or or the jew pulling the strings and i think that it's a it's a real powerful and intoxicating concoction Um, and it's a cocktail of ideologies and philosophies um, and also you have now of course the internet i was just i've got that on the tip of my tongue you know social media so you can find like-minded individuals immediately and stay in your silo plus you can you control because you can hide your identity so it's totally toxic so 
Absolutely. Mm. I couldn't so agree more. Let's go back to the, the play, yes. finally. Um, so how, as, as an actual story, as an actual drama, did you tell me about the, the drama of the play, how the, a, a little bit more, as much as you can, without giving anything away. You know, what are the fireworks on stage? What are the relationships? What are the things that you're trying to, to show us? It's a really interesting question. Um, without giving too much away, it is it is a story of, of two old friends. Sorry um, to laugh. It's just a number of times I think people say to me, without giving too much away. <laughs> no, but it's, it's not. You know, it's, it's important. You, of course it's important. for, And also this particularly, this one is, mm. is, is a bit of a thriller. Um, oh, good. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a... Um, a murder mystery in, in many ways. So Goodness me, it's beginning to sound like scandy noir. <laughs> well, it is set. So it's set in, um, as I said, over Hanukkah um, in, in 2001 mm. and um, uh, during a snowstorm where, where these four people end up being trapped in a house um, over a number of days. And the drama really happens, as you can imagine, when, when you are trapped in a house with, with, with two old friends who have very different ideological views of the world are challenging each other. There is a father-daughter relationship. So so there is um, Ava, who is um, Lars's daughter, um, but estranged. Um, and there is um, Sarah and Abe, who who are um, happily, and you can't see this, but I'm doing happily in inverted commas. Oh, yes, you're doing the inverted commas. Of course, of course, Sarah and Abe, they are our, our founding mother and father. They're named for them. So, so, so they, are, they, are, they are happily married, <laughs> in inverted commas. Um, yeah. And during the course of, of the play, I feel that... Their relationship and the and the problems that underpin it are are laid bare, come to the surface, um, because of the conflict that is happening between Abe and Lars. And um, in so doing, when it comes to the surface, for me, as far as I'm concerned, sunshine is 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 the a the best disinfectant, but also the best healer. Mm-hmm. And and for me, when it comes to the surface and they're able to talk about it, mm-hmm. finally, um, there's a moment in the play that is a secret that 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 has been kept um, for, for decades and, and it comes out and it doesn't have the reaction that everybody thought that it would um, because sometimes you hold on to these secrets and, and you, you imagine what a reaction to this secret will be and of course the reaction is, is different and, and, and in many ways really healing. I see the play as, and as I said, an opportunity to talk about so many different things and to go in so many different directions, but to have the jumping-off point of this this moment in history, which um, our understanding of has evolved um, to such an extent now that um, we are telling a very different story than today than we were um, 60 years ago, and uh, and to have these characters all represent different parts mm-hmm. of that story, um, and also to represent different parts of society and to represent different um, ideologies, and uh, I mean it's just for me it's so exciting to be on the cusp of working with these actors mm-hmm. and to to see the embodiment of of these ideas um, made made flesh. So I'm really really excited. Mm. I would stop there, but you've now we should probably name your actors because you've got a fantastic crew and you're a brilliant director. I, I mean, David Bamber is, is actually playing Abe and he he's awfully good at... He can do Jews and he can do Nazis. I've seen him do both. Um, fabulous actor, superb. So tell us about all your cast. So we, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled. So, so Kate, Kate Fahey, the director, has assembled this fantastic cast of David Bamber, as you, as you mentioned, um, who previously has played Adolf Hitler um, yes. in, in Tom Cruise's Valkyrie. So to play a, a slightly nebbish uh, Danish Jew, I think, is going to be fantastic. As, as a career arc, I think it's going to be fantastic. Um, and then we have uh, Neil McCall playing Lars um, and Julia Swift playing Abe's wife, Sarah. And we didn't initially 
specifically want this uh, necessarily we're looking for a husband and wife team but to have a husband and wife um, play a real life husband and wife play a real life husband oh, and wife on, on stage it's going to be so much fun and then of course we got Dorothea Maya Bennett who's playing Ava who I'm really excited yeah. to, to work with so uh, all in all we've got this uh, just exceptional cast and, and also the team uh, behind it I just want to um, give a shout out as mm, they say to, to Park Theatre because mm. um, this is a play that I mean I'm I, I'm a filmmaker and, and writing for the stage is very different. And Park Theatre and specifically uh, the artistic director, Jez Bond, has been incredibly mm. encouraging and incredibly generous in, in facilitating the possibility of, of working on this production. Mm. And for many years, actually, has, has helped cultivate it. Uh, he saw a, a reading I did, I think, mm. gosh, four years ago now. And, and since then, we've been uh, working in, in one form or another on it. So they've been fantastic. And it's such an amazing space as well that they've created mm. there. I'm just thrilled that we are able to to, uh, to put on this production and be part of their 2019 slate. It's very exciting. Yes, well, you are kicking off fjotties, aren't you? Yeah, yes. I mean, it's really special. We would end there, but I just want to ask you, in one of the articles you've written, you talk about when the Jews who did return to Denmark returned, they found fresh flowers on their tables and that's the most beautiful image I can't get it out of my mind I don't it's probably not necessarily in the play but it's it's a lovely note to end on does that is that something important to you I mean you've said it in an article I, I, I think it's I think this is the miracle for me the miracle of of the rescue is is less what um what I feel that the old narratives have been about 7,000 um Danish Jews making it across mm. the water, which obviously is, is is miraculous. But for me, the miracle is is the Danish people's view of the Jews, and uh, for me, it, it's epitomised by the fact that, and it didn't happen in every home. Um, no, and, but, and, it's but, a there, but there were there were homes that the Jews came back to after um, October forty three. So this would have been in, in forty five, and um, they came home to find their homes cleaned. And nothing taken, and fresh cut flowers on the living room table. I'm getting a bit teary just talking about it. I think we both are. And I think that is the right note to end on. I really do. So, Alexander Bodin Safia, I want to say the whole name because it's such a beautiful one. Thank you so much for talking to me today about Rosenbaum's rescue and so much more. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.